1: Granger, for the ones who get it done. Gosh darn it, even James Madison couldn't get a seat at the local Starbucks when he wanted one. The coffee house is abuzz with gamblers. He wrote to Thomas Jefferson, complaining about the scene in the nation's new capital. Indeed, Jefferson wrote back, noticing the same thing. Yes, some merchants came here from Richmond, Scotch, English, etc. I suspect it was to dabble in the federal filth. Yes, both of them were bemoaning all of these speculators, the effects of the great issue of the day, the one that they came on the wrong side of, the idea of a national bank. An idea that set off a frenzy of trading for the few precious subscriptions to this new Bank of the United States. Everywhere, especially in the coffee house that functioned not as just as a place to get your coffee, but also, not unlike today, as a business venue, a meeting place, an office for some. I mean, get your own office, guys. Some people are trying to get their caffeine fix. The Secretary of State Jefferson and the influential congressman from Virginia, Madison, did not see the trading as benign. They would not be cheering the price of bank script the way that we look at the Dow every day now and like when it's in the plus column. They saw it as a ripoff, a drain of money from cash-strapped states to New York, a drain of resources from revolutionary war soldiers to common speculators, rich merchants, who had not raised a musket in defense of the nation, profiting on the increased indebtedness of their fellow men on this issue At this time in the early republic, these two were in the minority. The idea of a bank might have been seen 20 years earlier in a very obscure place. A 16-year-old in West Indies island of St. Croix, head clerk at the firm of Beekman Kruger. Self-educated? You wouldn't know it from his math skills or his perfect handwriting, as he sent off notes to Beekman Kruger's trading partners on other islands, asking for their current accounts and correcting their addition quite often with a stern note as he dismissed his boss's law firm for non-performance, as he dealt with poorly loaded cargo ship telling it to drop off some of its cargo early, as he sent dunning letters to deadbeats, as he ran the entire business for Nicholas Kruger during a five-month absence. The son of an unmarried Scottish drifter and an island storekeeper from Nevis, a remote island in the British West Indies, was an unlikely person to be a cabinet member of the new United States. Yet events would transpire that way. Hamilton's grateful boss would send him to America for college and introduce him to all of his merchant friends. At King's College, arriving in 1773, he read everything he could, and he was right in time for the independence movement, when an Anglican clergyman, Samuel Seabury, would write a series of letters under the moniker, Letters from a Westchester Farmer. Yes, he wrote letters and political attacks, not in your own name back in those days, when he attacked the Continental Congress that was meeting in Philadelphia as a bunch of tyrants, and when he attacked the boycott that they called for of British exports, a foolish move designed to make merchants here rich, Hamilton then wrote back under the title The Farmer Refuted, a huge pamphlet. Then evoke great philosophy, John Locke, David Hume discussed economics of trade and even predicted that if it came to a fight, the Americans would whoop the British. And oh, by the way, he questioned whether the author was a real farmer. The flyers brought him notoriety and nobody knew they were written by a 19-year-old. When Pamphlet War turned into real war, Hamilton drilled with fellow students at night. When New York State asked for an artillery unit, He read some books and became an expert in artillery. Soon he was in Washington's army, developing a reputation for administration and bravery during the retreat from New York through New Jersey. Soon he was invited to be an aide de camp for Washington. He had assisted Washington. He thought for me, the general would say. He served him all the way to Yorktown, and after that moment he became a congressman under the Confederation government, that weak alliance of states that was conceived of after the war. In this role, Hamilton met James Madison, and the two of them commiserated when the Confederation government couldn't do anything, couldn't get anything done. The worst was when the new nation tried to establish a 5% excise tax, just enough to keep the new government going, pay people, and credibly pay back the nation's enormous debt. All the states agreed except rhode island and under the system then which required a unanimous approval rhode island could hold it up so the other 12 states joined to try to coerce rhode island and then they lost virginia in the process this was maddening for these two young scholars of government at the time madison and hamilton were allies in the need for a strong national government both were active in the annapolis convention which wouldn't do anything wouldn't accomplish anything but predated the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Both were there in 1787. Hamilton wanted a much stronger federal government during the convention than what resulted out of it. He gave a speech on the floor of the Constitutional Convention, which lasted almost a full day, in which he called for a president serving for an indefinite amount of time, a Senate that would serve for life, certainly, federal army, weak states that might actually be reduced in size. The best model, he said, was England. We should create another nation that's just like England. Not dependent to England, free of England, but another nation just as strong. He was applauded, but not supported, one delegate said. After ratification, in which he wrote most of the now-termed Federalist Papers in the New York newspaper supporting ratification in the New York State Convention that was to approve the Constitution, and when Washington took the oath of office as president, He appointed him to the post of Secretary of the Treasury. And there he wasted no time hiring hundreds of employees, the largest federal department that spanned the nation. He established an excise tax and pushed legislation to assume the state's debts into the federal debt. The idea was to build a powerful United States, not with a bunch of indebted states that would have no allegiance to the central system and would have to pay their own debts first, but to have all the states part of a powerful union shared in their debts. On this issue, Madison didn't support him. For Madison, the assumption was too far, especially when it would reward wealthy merchants who owned all this debt. See, it was very common for Revolutionary War soldiers who might have been paid in a a note from a state, an IOU in a sense. But the states having no money, no gold coins to pay them, they sold off their IOU to merchants for very little money. Madison wanted to be sure that these soldiers were paid first, or at least paid some amount. It wasn't just fairness. It wasn't just an intellectual change in Madison alone, most likely. There was another factor, the one that we're aware of with our politicians today. Madison got primaried. Well, not really, but in a way he did. There were no parties, but a soldier in the Revolutionary War, a vet who took a musket ball when Americans surprised the sleepy Hessians at Trenton and who studied law under Jefferson, an opponent of the Constitution, whose name was James Monroe, gave him a hard, hard fight. Not unlike the congressmen of today, Madison saw, when he saw the Monroe campaign starting, that it was necessary to leave his Confederation Congress seat in New York and run for this seat in Congress in Virginia under the new Constitution. In tiny towns across the 5th District of Virginia, Madison and Monroe debated. Monroe accused his rival of thinking the Constitution that had been written in Philadelphia with little input from Virginians was perfect. He did not think that a single letter needed to be changed. Madison beat Monroe after a hard fight, but in doing so he had committed to a bill of rights added to the document. And perhaps during that congressional race he also got a taste of what absolute nationalism was thought of in his home in Virginia. And that little reading of the Riot Act changed Madison a bit. Madison opposed Assumption, as did Jefferson and many others. But to get what he wanted, Alexander Hamilton did what any budding politician, student of Machiavelli, might do. He sold out his friends, most notably the Pennsylvanians who wanted the capital in Philadelphia or in nearby Germantown. They could be traded. New York wasn't going to get the capital long-term. Everybody knew that. It was either going to be in Philadelphia or something the Virginians wanted. So Hamilton traded. Vote for Assumption, and I'll have some New Yorkers vote for the capital in the Potomac. Hamilton got his way, especially after he traded away that capital location to the Potomac, the mighty river where Virginians supposed the future lay. Yet his most audacious plan to transform the infant nation to a world giant was the creation of a bank. A bank that would take the assumed debts of all the states and the federal government, the Continental Congress that had fought the Revolutionary War, and turn that debt into an asset. Something that only a large nation's full faith and credit could do. England had done it, why not we? When we discuss Founding Fathers today, with a spirited conservative movement in today's American political discussion, of course, there tends to be a focus on those that fit that bill. The founders like George Mason, the Jefferson, the Madison, with their hands up saying, no more. States' rights, small government, agriculture, the Bill of Rights, the 10th Amendment. Founders that fit that bill are more talked about today as if that's the total. It's accurate, and certainly it would be an era of omission not to mention these people. Anti-federal small government forces were very powerful in early America, and particularly those well-known Virginians that had a limiting effect on the most outlandish proposals for a large federal government, like Hamilton's at the convention. But it's too far if one sense of the history of the early republic ignores the other side, that there were also large government founders and They wanted the federal system to be stronger, and they influenced the government, and in that early going, they were winning, and the Virginians were being outvoted. The very creation of a constitution, rather than an article's, was itself a step in the large government direction, and it was supported by a majority of the state's delegates in the 1787 Philadelphia Convention, then by 12, later 13 states in ratifying conventions across the nation. Now, We mustn't forget that these ratifying conventions also had a limiting effect because they limited this new federal power with lots of suggested amendments whittled down by Madison into just ten. That's like focusing on the side dish and forgetting about your meal. The whole project was to build a federal government. One small for our times, and small compared to Britannia certainly, but large for their times. Federal city, federal courts, federal tax collection, control over peace and war, diplomatic powers, interstate commerce. No, it wasn't an entity that controlled every aspect of a former Minuteman's life. It didn't issue you a number at birth or ask for your papers, but no one would even expect that anyway in 1787. It did have a say over who you sold things to, what monies might be available to you to start a trade, Whether there would be a road in your state, perhaps, or not, it could protect you if you went oyster fishing and drifted into another state's waters, or if you were owed money and a state refused to pay you. These were early actions of the Supreme Court at a federal level. It should be said, it wasn't easy to create, and there was bitter opposition in America, yet there were also founders, some of the names especially we don't hear a lot of anymore, Sedgwick, Ames, Morris. Ellsworth, Izzard, Rutledge, who thought that the idea was a great America with industries and cities that wouldn't be gobbled up by the next armada arriving to port. Hamilton led this faction. He wasn't the only one, and he wasn't coercing for any expansion of the federal government. He could count on the votes of Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Connecticut, part of New York, that part not influenced by the governor, George Clinton, Maryland, and the coastal South Carolinians. And in several buildup up measures in 1790 to 1793, when he was Treasury Secretary, he had a reliable majority and the signature of the president. It's just as fair to say, however, that there was a backlash and that ultimately three Virginians in the White House resulted, three Virginians in a row. And the triumph of the lower government, small government ideology was held. No one should think that popular will backed national government in all parts of the United States. It's just that, in today's time, we tend to now privilege the Jeffersonians when we should be presenting the full richness of what was then a struggle with two sides about what kind of nation we would be. The struggle would manifest itself most over the entity that was to be housed in a building on 3rd Street in Philadelphia, the first bank of the United States, completely modeled after the Bank of England. A $10 million entity. $2 $2 million of which would be held by the government, and $8 million that would be sold to the, quote, public to finance, which they would pay for with either gold coins or by purchasing national debt and using that as payment. Why a bank? You had a couple of problems in 1789. Okay, so now there was this national government to settle disputes between states, but he still had no national currency. And the country needed stuff. It was to catch up with other nations. Manufacturing was still weak. There was no paper currency. Paper was easier to pass through hands to do business. People were still using a lot of inflated state paper, some British currency, but especially Spanish coins called dollars. Look at the Bank of England, Hamilton would tell men in government. It's not just a bank. It can also finance projects needed by the government. Oh, and what was one of these projects? Well crushing us Americans. Indeed, they spent hundreds of millions of pounds to crush us, and they had a huge debt, maybe $248 Englishmen felt they were now in a bankrupt country after the Revolutionary War. But no, William Pitt, the prime minister, turned that around. He got his fiscal house in order. He tightened up customs, made sure that no one escaped the excise taxes, raised taxes a bit, but he also made Britain's debt attractive and was able to, in a sense refinance on the good name of the country. They'll always be in England. So Hamilton thought, let's turn those tables. Do the same thing the English are doing and, and build this system to make our nation strong as well and give us these type of financial privileges. December 1790, Hamilton makes his report. It says the tax potential of the U.S. can pay what's owed even with the assumption of state debts. Why not take these debts then? and allow the security holders to do something with it. A central location make multiplied funds available to industries, businessmen, would-be industrialists, and these notes can also be used as a kind of national paper currency.
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? First ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off
0: launches April 9th.
1: Plus, this entity can take care of things like depositing taxes and paying government salaries. The House deferred to the Senate on Hamilton's proposal. A special committee of senators, Caleb Strong, Robert Morris, Pierce Butler, Oliver Ellsworth, Philip Shiler, Hamilton's father-in-law helps to have the fam on the Senate. They voted for Hamilton's proposal, considered it, voted for it, and then it passed the Senate about three to one. Then we went to the House of Representatives. Here in the House, there was more vocal opposition, led by James Madison. Yes, a bank could be said as something to have some utility, but a federal bank? There are some issues, he said. There's a drain of gold and silver from the states to the central entity. There's the possibility that you are going to have Americans use banknotes to do their trading here in the U.S., the paper currency, and then they're going to send the gold for the imports they buy, thus sending all of our real money abroad, mostly to England. And also, this Bank of United States proposal is not fair. You can only use gold or silver or federal debt to pay its subscription. What about state money? What about state banknotes? But forget all those things, Madison said. The real issue is it's not constitutional. You can't do it because the Constitution does not allow this. It was, he said, condemned by the silence of the Constitution, condemned by the intent of the convention, and further condemned by the explanatory amendments. We should trust James Madison, but... That is not there, but you know the old saying, trust but verify, even for our Founding Fathers. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution lists the powers of Congress. It lists 21 powers, my count. Collect taxes, pay debts, create new debts, provide for the common defense and general welfare, regulate international commerce, Regulate interstate commerce, Indian relations, establish immigration rules, bankruptcy rules, coin money, punish counterfeiters, establish post offices and post roads, promote science and art, copyrights and patents, create courts, punish pirates, declare war, set prisoner of war rules, raise armies, provide a navy, regulate the military, call forth the militia if there's a rebellion inside the country run the capital city, run any federal forts and armories, dockyards, other federal buildings. But then, it adds at the end of Section 8, and to make all laws necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, all powers, and all powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States. Article 1, Section 8, folks, and Jimmy's right. Nothing in there that allows you to create a bank. The Constitution that he helped to frame was not, he said, a general grant with specific exceptions of powers. It was the reverse. It was a grant of particular powers only, leaving the general mass in the state's hands. Look, he said, why are certain powers stated, taxing, borrowing, defense? Why would you even state them? And he added, don't try that necessary and proper stuff. The enumerated powers are subjoined to those words, necessary and power. And that's all that's meant by it. What I think is so often, as history is looked at, because we all have our particular biases or things we like to focus on, that's one side. So you have James Madison as a member of Congress from Virginia, presenting one side. Other people rose, of course, in opposition to this bold statement. Fisher Ames of Massachusetts rises to oppose. First, he says, bank is useful on the merits, it's useful to trade, and it could be useful in an emergency. And if we can't pass laws, save those implicit in the Constitution, he said, Fisher Ames now, it was a little late in the day to adopt that principle. Hardly a law passed in this Congress that relied on express powers. If the country were invaded, we'd have to raise an army. And even if that wasn't written, in there. It's implied in the power to declare war. Elbridge Gehry, also from Massachusetts, rises in support. He reads Madison from Blackstone the Law Dictionary, and your rules of interpretation are wrong. It's supposed to be when you're looking at the intent of a body like the Constitutional Convention either the words, context, subject matter, the effect, the consequent, or the spirit and result of the law that should be looked at. He feels Madison made up this particular interpretation for the occasion. Theodore Sedgwick, Philadelphia Federalist, rises as well. Why, Madison, you yourself said in 1789 that the executive, the president, could remove his own appointees. But that's not in the Constitution. Yet we follow that. But what had to be the most damning, though we didn't know how damning it was, was a statement of the lawyer from Elizabeth, New Jersey, Congressman Elias Boudinot. He read from the Federalist Paper No. 44, written under the alias Publius, supporting the Constitution that said, Had the Convention attempted an enumeration of all the powers necessary, the attempt would have involved a complete digest of laws. For in every new application of a general power, the particular powers which are the means of attaining the object of the general power must vary with the object and be often properly varied, but the object remains the same. Boudinot had no idea what kind of torpedo he was unleashing, because the piece that he read from the Federalist Papers, which everyone assumed, Hamilton wrote most of them, was actually written by James Madison. Yet he didn't know, and Madison certainly didn't correct him on the floor of Congress. So there's some debate. There's support. There's opposition. Madison sees where it's going. He makes his statement more for maybe we can get a presidential veto out of this. Sees where it's going in Congress. Calls for a vote. 20 congressmen vote against it, but 39 for it. Almost all of New England, some of the middle states, and the coastal area of South Carolina all vote for it. The national bank bill then goes to the president. Now, George Washington doesn't immediately say that he's going to accept this. He does see the constitutional issue here. Madison has already had a few free conversations with President Washington. Washington listened to him, says little, but does ask Madison to write a message for me in case I veto. Then he goes to his cabinet. Now, it's not today's cabinet with a full room of men, a full room of men around a brown table, basically four people at this time. Henry Knox war. I will we'll skip him because spanking has nothing to do with him, Jefferson's Secretary of State, Edmund Randolph, the AG, and Alexander Hamilton. Each of the three give his opinion. Randolph says, veto it. It's unconstitutional. It violates what's written in the 10th Amendment. Anything not expressly stated in the Constitution goes to the state. Jefferson says the same thing. The 10th is as clear as day. He writes to Washington, If you start divining powers from the Necessary and Proper Clause, you'll take possession of a boundless field of power with no definition. Alexander Hamilton counters these two. Every power invested in a government, he writes to Washington, is sovereign. It includes the right to implore the means. Yes, this nation has divided the power between states and national. Yes, but that doesn't mean that it isn't complete power where it's an area that the federal government has in charge. The example he gives, it's not that you can't create a federal corporation at all. It's the object. Congress cannot create a corporation to create a police force for Philadelphia. That's up to the state of Pennsylvania, the city of Philadelphia. But it can for an object it is allowed to do. Interstate commerce, trade, is one of those objects. But, and this must have really convinced the general weary of a weak and indecisive Continental Congress during the war, go with Jefferson's interpretation and you'll only be able to do what's necessary, which he seems to attach to it, absolutely necessary. When I say necessary, I mean useful. It's any useful power. His definition of government would make this institution feeble. President Washington agreed with Hamilton. And two days later, he signs. And now it goes to the Supreme Court of the United States? No, actually. That part of the puzzle is actually missing in laws of this time. After President Washington signed it, they started a bank. And they started a Philadelphia location. And subscriptions were sold in a few hours. Why didn't it go to the Supreme Court to review whether it was constitutional or not? No, at this time in the early republic, that was up to the men in Congress to decide if it was constitutional. And the president's veto was seriously seen as a check against unconstitutionality. The president would veto something that wasn't constitutional in his opinion. Washington didn't limit himself to that. He vetoed for other reasons, different laws, but that was the check. And once the Congress the executive decided the law was constitutional, so it was. Subscriptions were sold in a few hours, and speculation for bank scripts was fierce. Branches were open in Boston and New York, and Charleston in order to reward those low-country South Carolinian supporters, and eventually in Richmond as well. It is an entity that does not exist today, we should note. We have a Fed, yes, but it's, a, it's not a lending bank, and it is a controlling body, half-political, half-banking. We do not have a single bank of the United States. But it did last some time. The Bank of the United States survived the administration of two presidents who were opposed to it, men who wished to kill it at the time. It lasted until 1811, when its charter renewal was defeated by one vote. What's interesting about that vote in 1811 is James Madison is now President Madison, but he, at his treasury secretary's insistence, actually urged renewal of the bank now. Expediency and almost necessity required it, he said, 20 years after his constitutional opposition on the floor of Congress. Congress still didn't renew. Among those opposing, a young Kentucky congressman, Henry Clay. He argued there were 88 state banks now. There were only three at the time of the bank's approval. We don't need a Bank of the United States anymore. In April 1816, after the Capitol had burned down in the war with the British, Post-war finances were in disarray. Inflation from all these state banks was rampant. A second bank of the United States was formed. This time, after reconsideration, long war, maybe a few bourbons, Henry Clay was an enthusiastic supporter of a second bank of the United States. New president, James Monroe, who had challenged Madison for his congressional seat back when, now in the big chair, and he proposes something else. A system of roads financed by federal dollars. The army needs to travel in an emergency. We can't have militia unable to get to the coastal areas to defend the capital. We need to get troops to our frontier and back. We need national roads and canals. Canals in 1816 were the train, plane, and truck of their day. The engine of commerce. Madison proposes this idea in his opening speech to Congress, but he has his own qualms. Maybe he says we should submit this to a vote. Maybe we should add a constitutional amendment, because nothing in the Constitution says we can fund a national road. No, Speaker Clay and others in Congress disagree. It's not necessary. The federal government has the power. Leave well enough alone. Don't waste your efforts on a constitutional vote. These events are of interest As the Supreme Court considers whether it's constitutional to construct something that is definitely not expressed in the Constitution, and would not have been considered because it really didn't exist—a healthcare system—healthcare then would have consisted. Well, I mentioned Henry Clay's bourbon, didn't I? But in all seriousness, although there were doctors, few hospital buildings in the big cities, it wasn't something that would concern a nineteenth-century federal government. There were founders, however who did advocate things not written in the Constitution, such as the creation of a bank or a canal funded by all of us. It might add some perspective to something like the comments of Justice Kennedy during the recent Supreme Court oral argument that can you create commerce in order to regulate talking about the health care reform system? This bank was in the federal purview because the early leaders of the nation said it was. In a narrow sense, the debate now going on over at the Supreme Court of the United States is a very different matter than this bank debate. Healthcare legislation requires not a large expenditure. Those precedents are already set. The feds, tomorrow, could build hospitals in 50 states or even just some of them and wouldn't go to the ropes. Since the mechanism of health care reform is tricky, requiring each individual to buy an insurance plan or have it provided for them through employer. It raises different questions than just the role of federal government in commerce, or if something can be done if it's not expressly in the Constitution. Thus, it certainly shouldn't be argued that, hey, Hamilton created a bank, so Obama's health care legislation is good, no problem. But it might add some perspective as what do valid parts of the arguments against it from invalid parts. These examples are useful in any perspective in two areas. The contention that the government cannot do something just because it's not written in the Constitution, and then that all founders were strictly small government types, strong state types. Better to say, things have been done in the past that weren't listed in the Constitution, whether this one is a good idea or not, though they were hotly contested when they were done. And better to say, a sizable amount of American founders advocated small government at the federal level and strong states. And at times, those founders won, and at times, they lost debates. Ain't embracing complexity fun? I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. There you can buy the archive of everything we've recorded since. 2006. A lot of stuff there. It's $14.99 right now. Facebook site where you can comment. And if you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.